Matthew 27, 32 through 44. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, just thank you for letting us gather here this morning and worship you. I pray that um, you would still our minds and open our hearts to your word, Lord. Uh, just thank you for um, humbling yourself to death on the cross, Lord, um, for coming as a child and um, just for dying for us, God. I pray that we would live uh, in response to that, Lord, and um, we just thank you, Lord. Hey, good morning. How are we? Good? Uh, the students, you guys are quiet because I know finals are either happening or over or coming up, but praying for you guys. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Welcome to Aletheia. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. As you guys know, we've been going through our series, The Grand Narrative, this fall, and we've got one week left after this week, and next week we'll be looking kind of in the book of Revelation at this idea of glory and what God is doing when he returns. Uh, but this week what we're going to look at is we're going to look at really the, the kind of like the, the last moments of Jesus' public ministry. And one of the things that we've been talking about over the course of the fall is this idea of the, the flow of the Bible being this unfolding story of what God has been doing in and amongst his creation. Okay, and so it starts with creation and it moves on to the fall pretty early on by Genesis chapter 3. And then everything after Genesis chapter 3 has been this unfolding story of what God is doing to redeem mankind to himself. How, basically, rescuing us. What, what is God going to do to rescue us? And so last week we talked about the Last Supper. And then this week what we're going to look at is Jesus' actual act on the cross, what he was doing and what was happening. And, and so what's been, what's been really interesting to me as we've been going through this study and as I've been thinking about over the, the last couple years of ministry, when, when I first arrived in Gainesville, I had a part-time job at a local bank that no longer exists under that name anymore. They got bought out by a bigger bank. And, but I would work Saturday mornings there, um, which was great because none of you students wake up before 12 o'clock anyway on a Saturday, so there wasn't anything for me to do with the ministry anyway, so it was, it was great. I was able to make a little extra money and make sure that Jackie could eat and Gideon as well, and then was able to kind of like move on and do some ministry stuff in the afternoon. And there was one girl that I worked with at the bank at this time, and, and um, she'd grown up in the Gainesville area, and she always had like tons of questions for me about the church and what we were doing and what we were all about. And I remember one Saturday in 
particular, we were sitting there, and she, you know, she's kind of grilling with questions, like typical hot-button it questions that non-Christians will ask a Christian, especially if they're trying to, like, trap them somewhere. So, you know, she's asking me, like, you know, what's your church's view on women in leadership? And, you know, are you all male chauvinists, and do you hate women? I'm like, well, no. You know, I'm married. I love women. You know? Like, as a matter of my wife is awesome. You know? And so then she's, she kind of moves on. She's like, well, what about, you know, what about homosexuals? Don't all Christians hate gays? I'm like, well, I don't. I don't think Jesus does either. You know, if that's been kind of like the, the picture that's been painted for you from people in the church, I'm sorry. Um, but it's not how we feel about it. You know, uh, we, we feel like, you know, the sins that are talked about under, underneath homosexuality are, the same, are sins just like anyone else struggles with. And tried to kind of paint this picture of what sin really is and our need for Jesus. And instead of focusing on the sin, I like to focus instead on like the redemptive work of what Christ has done. So I'm talking to her about that. And so as we were sitting there talking, um, she asked this question that like, the look on my face must have been hilarious. Because it totally like just shocked me in the moment. And she looks at me and she says, well Kevin, one thing that like I've always struggled with when I've thought about what Christians believe and what they think is why would God murder his own son? Anybody ever been asked that question? No. Like it's not, it's not something that typically the non-Christian asks the Christian. And, and, and I was like, man, okay, whoa. All right, well, all right, how long do you have? Right? Because uh, we close in 45 minutes and I could talk to you for three days about this. Um, and be really excited about it, and maybe like we could take a break from meals, but I would love to explain to you, one, that's, one, that's not really how it worked. You know, God didn't murder his son. Jesus freely gave his life. Let's, let's start there. But what was shocking to me, right, is that she would ask that question in the first place. Because I have a friend, he's a pastor in Virginia. He, he was a pastor in North Carolina for a long time. His name is Paul Fisk. And when I used to, you know, do evangelism with him, he, he challenged me that when you're in the South, you have to ask different questions than, than what you would ask up in, in Virginia and in the Northeast. Because there's a different kind of social and cultural construct that comes from growing up in the South as opposed to the Northeast. And what he meant by that was, is you can't just ask somebody if they're a Christian or not. You know, in the Northeast, if I ask somebody if they're a Christian, especially like from New York, Boston area, you know, they're going to be like, ah, you know, like maybe my grandmother was Catholic. And it's like, oh, it comes to the bloodline, okay, right? And, and so like, yeah, and, and then you would start talking about your faith and be like, so what do you believe? That, that would be their question. In the South, you come down here, like, they're like, if you ask the question, are you a Christian, like 85% of you guys are like, well, I, you know, my grandparents and my parents, we, you know, we went to Bum Creek Baptist Church, you know, for 30 years, or, you know, we went to my family's local Catholic church, or we went to the Nazarene church or the Methodist church. Like, most people in the South... The culture of the South, even though it's kind of starting to die off, the culture of the South is that you guys grew up, if you're from around here, in a culture that valued going to church and that being a part of your lifestyle. And so he said, when you are addressing people in the South, you can't ask them whether they're a Christian or not, or whether they're even religious. You need to ask them, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because their answer will tell you everything you need to know about where they stand in regards to the claims of Christ and who he is. Because here's the reality. 
if you ask that question to someone on campus, you are going to get, if you ask 20 different people, you're going to get 20 different answers. You know, you might hear, oh, he was some sort of political insurrectionist. He was the son of God who died for man's sins. Um, It was a big mistake. He was wrongly tried. You're going to get different answers to that story. But what you really need to pin down is if they understand the theological importance of what was going on in that moment. Okay? So what? So what we read earlier in Matthew chapter 27 is what we're going to be focused in on today. And one of the fascinating things and one of the reasons I chose Matthew's account of the crucifixion is that the other gospel writers tend to focus in more on Jesus' time on the cross. Matthew tends to focus on the audience during the crucifixion. And that's going to be super important to understanding what Matthew is trying to communicate as far as the importance of the cross and what's going on there. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to read a couple verses here, and then I'm going to start unpacking them for you guys. And maybe, hopefully, we can walk our way from our time this morning with a bigger view of Jesus because he's worthy. Okay, so starting in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 27. As they went out... So this is everyone that's kind of involved with Jesus' trial, all right? What's gone on right before this section is Jesus' trial and then subsequent beating and flogging um, by the Jewish leaders and then the Roman leaders, okay? So as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, sounds like a really fun place to vacation, right? They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. So, like I said, they've just left his trial and then his subsequent beating, and then Pilate has just sentenced Jesus to death, okay? And what is going on at this point is they're leaving and they're heading to this place right outside the city of Jerusalem called Golgotha, where they are going to crucify Jesus and two other men. Okay, and, and as, as they're taking Jesus there, let me kind of explain and break down for you everything that's been going on up to this point. First, Jesus was tried wrongly, and I don't just mean in the sense that he was declared guilty, but the trial that Jesus went through was actually illegal according to Jewish law. To, to try Jesus at night the way that they had done this was actually illegal. So everything that had been done up until this point was actually a breaking of the Jewish law in order to have Jesus considered to be guilty. Okay, And so they put Jesus through this kind of like this false trial process. They condemned him before they were supposed to condemn him. And so they arrive at this point, and at this point... Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman uh, governor over this particular region of the area, sentenced Jesus to be flogged but not crucified, even though the Jews had asked this of him, saying that he had found no fault. And what ends up happening is they flog Jesus, and if you guys know anything about the ways that Romans would beat people, they use this thing called a flagellum, and basically the, the best way to describe it is a long whip with um, like barbed wire at the end of it. 
And what they do is they would take this, they would take this whip and they would whip people with it, basically ripping their skin off. Okay, and so Jesus went through this beating process, and oftentimes they would do this before a crucifixion anyway, and they wouldn't need to end up crucifying whoever had been sentenced to death because the process would kill whoever, whoever the criminal was. And so Jesus goes through this process, he's bled a lot, he's probably suffering internal injuries at this point, and then they, they sentence him to death. And at this point, the process to move forward in the crucifixion was you carried your own wooden beam to your burial site, basically, or, or your, your execution site. And so Jesus is beginning to take his own cross with him to the site where he is going to be murdered, okay? And as Jesus is walking and carrying his cross, he's unable to do so. He's so physically exhausted from everything that he's been through up until this point that he's unable to go any further. And so they, they asked this guy, Simon of Cyrene, and Cyrene is this area in Libya of North Africa. And he's there because of the Passover feast that's currently occurring in Jerusalem. Um, which is interesting because if you think about it, right, Matthew mentions, okay, hey, there's this guy named Simon of Cyrene from North Africa who's there, and that's who we got to um, carry the cross who is the Simon that probably should have been carrying the cross? Right? Simon Peter, right? Jesus' closest disciple. And yet, this random Gentile North African guy, Simon of Cyrene, is the one who's there. And he helps carry the cross to Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now, if anyone's been in modern day Israel and Jerusalem and, and had like the privilege of being able to kind of tour the Holy Land and be around that, that area, there's a lot of debate amongst where this area probably was, but common church tradition states that where the church of the Holy Sepulchre sits now is where Jesus was crucified. That this was the spot outside the city of Jerusalem where he was crucified. And early um, church fathers and Jewish tradition actually states that in that same area, that was where Adam was buried. And so you have this interesting idea of the first Adam being buried there, and then Jesus, who's often called the second Adam throughout the scriptures, is also crucified in this same place. Okay? And so as Jesus is heading to this place to be executed, they offer him wine mixed with gall to drink, okay? And this is a, a, a seemingly minute detail that's actually a really, really big deal in the theological flow of what's going on in this passage, okay? Because theologically, what Jesus is going to be doing here involves him drinking the wrath of God for our sin, okay? And so, for Jesus to drink this wine mixed with gall, basically what this was supposed to do was to dull the pain of the process of crucifixion. Sometimes even there would be poison mixed in with the wine that would actually kill the person that drank it so they wouldn't have to go through the crucifixion process. Um, if you throw up Proverbs chapter 31 verse 6 for me, um, Solomon actually talks about this. He, he, he says, for one who is perishing, give 
them strong drink and wine to those in bitter distress. You know, it's kind of like if you've ever had a close family member or someone you know or a loved one go through a hospice care process where, you know, they're, that they're, they're dying, they're, their situation's terminal, they're not going to make it. The entire kind of like job of hospice care nurses and doctors and people that work in that particular field is to really kind of try to make the person as c- comfortable as possible in their remaining time on this earth. And so whoever offers this drink to Jesus is trying to offer them this pain-killing narcotic so that, they won't su- so that he won't suffer as much in what he's about to go through. And it says that Jesus tasted it and he refuses it. Okay? And here's why. Throw up Matthew chapter 26, verse 39 for me. In the previous chapter of the book of Matthew, right, this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. And he's supposed to be praying there with his disciples, and his disciples have all fallen asleep. And he continues to sit there and pray and cry out to the Father. And this is one of the things that he says to the Father as he's sitting there. He says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see in this moment that this is one of those, those moments where Matthew is communicating to, to us as the readers of the gospel here. Jesus fully knowing what he's about to walk into. He knows that as he walks into being arrested, beaten, and then crucified, what's going on during that time is he's actually going to be taking the punishment for your sin and mine on his shoulders. That this isn't just some run-of-the-mill crucifixion and beating under Roman law that Jesus is going through, but it's actually the wrath of the Father being poured out on him. And that Everything he's about to walk through, he's willingly walking through, and he cannot take the easy way out. That he has to actually allow the pain and the suffering to be experienced so that he can fully pay the price for what you and I have done. No pain meds, fully accepting what God's done. And this is the first thing that God's sharing. You know, he's not really, he's not actually talking about a ton of what Jesus is thinking through or processing through, but he says, hey, someone tries to give Jesus a cup of wine and he denied it, and here's why. Right? Any Jew reading this would have known immediately what was going on and why Jesus was doing this. And as Jesus is doing this and he's carrying his cross to this place outside the city of Jerusalem, the crowd begins to mock him along with the Roman guards, right? They're gambling over his clothing. Uh, they put the inscription up above his, set, his head that says, here is Jesus, king of the Jews. And they had the nerve to murder him with two other guilty robbers and murderers. And all that's going on here is shades of Psalm 22 which is a famous passage in the book of Psalms where David kind of talks about his own suffering, but also talks about the future suffering of the Messiah. Let me read that to you. You might even recognize this from being quoted in another gospel account. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 
Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. And then go down to verse six. But I am, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All those who seek, see me, mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. But he who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And so everything that Jesus is kind of walking through in this entire process is the mocking and betrayal and the scorning of the very people that he came to save, and yet he continues to trust in the perfect plan of God the Father for him. And he's mocked as he walks through it. So then in verse 39, look what happens next. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so, as they're, as they're going out of the city, remember that Passover is still going on. Remember I talked about this last week, that the, the meal that they were sharing together was the Passover meal where they were remembering that God had passed over everyone who had sacrificed a lamb and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, but spared the Israeli firstborn sons. And so people from all over the world have come in to celebrate, and those that kind of see Jesus, they're walking by and they begin to mock him. And amongst this mockery, we're going to see the second thing that Matthew's trying to communicate to us about the crucifixion, right? The first one being that Jesus willingly submitted to this. That he willingly submitted to everything that was going to happen and knew that it was happening by walking and carrying the cross, by allowing himself to be arrested, by allowing himself to go through an unfair trial, and then by allowing himself not to take the pain medication or the narcotic that he would have taken in that last one, that he fully accepted God's wrath and willingly walked into that. The second thing that we're going to see here is that amongst this mockery, we're seeing that Jesus went to the cross for a very specific purpose, and that's to reconnect us to God without needing some sort of religious um, sacrifice or offerings of the way that it had been set up in the Jewish system at this point. Right? Look at what they say to him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So what they're yelling at Jesus for is being basically a temple basher. Now, first century Israel loved the temple. It was like, it was probably their biggest source of both national pride and uh, religious activity. And so Jesus made this statement um, early on in his ministry. If you go to John chapter 2 and look at it, Jesus had cleansed the temple. And while he was there... What ended up happening is he turned over a bunch of tables and kind of threw people out. And at, when they're asking him why he's able to do this, he kind of explains that he's in charge of the temple, that he's the God of the temple. And they're saying, you know, how dare you do this? Who, what gives you this threat? And, he's, and he says to them, right, if you destroy this temple, I'll build it back up again in three days. And it's the, the claim he makes. 
And so what they're saying is, is, hey, you claimed that you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, and yet look at you. You're heading to your crucifixion. You're cursed. God has cursed you for the blasphemy of talking against the temple. And so some of you guys are like, Kevin, what the heck does this have to do with the cross? What does Jesus claiming, right, that the temple could be destroyed and rebuilt again in three days, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus heading to the cross? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9 with me. I know we're jumping around a lot. But this is kind of paramount to understanding what's going on here. Look at verse 23. We're going to look at four verses here. Here the writer of Hebrews is talking about what Jesus' death on the cross has kind of accomplished in the sense of the role of the temple in the life of Israel now. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he's talking about temple sacrifices. He's like, look, you know, offering sacrifices to God, it was necessary for me, for for God to institute um, atoning sacrifices for sin inside the temple and the tabernacle so that you would remember that you were needing God's mercy and forgiveness and that there needed to be something to pay for your sin. That's basically what the author of Hebrews is saying there. But God was sending something better. Okay, so look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay, so let me break down what the author of Hebrews is trying to say to us. Okay. In the temple, there was kind of these different sections that people were allowed to go into. So there was this one section was called the court of the Gentiles and anybody could go into that section. And then the next section, they had another court, but that was only for those of Jewish descent. Okay, and so if you were culturally Jewish and grew up Jewish, then you could go into that next particular courtyard and area and begin to worship God in that portion of the temple. Then inside that area was this, te- was this temple place called the, the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant set and where other things set. And every year, one day out of the year, the high priest of Israel could enter into that section of the temple. And what he would do there is he would offer up a sacrifice asking for God's forgiveness to the nation of Israel for their sins. That was his job. If you went into that section at any other time of the year, you would be killed. And what that was representing was, is the holiness of God is something so sacred and so important that No human being can enter into the presence of God unless God allows it because we are imperfect and God is not. And so all of this was supposed to symbolize, right, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And that one time of year, there would be this atoning sacrifice offered. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is the temple sacrifice system of needing to repeatedly offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin is no longer necessary because what the Holy of Holies represented, which is heaven and God's perfection, Jesus has actually entered. And when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies to 
asked for forgiveness of sin and what that represented, Jesus has gone into the throne room of heaven and sits at the Father petitioning for your forgiveness through his sacrifice of his own life. And so what Matthew is saying here is that while Jesus is being mocked for saying that the temple could be destroyed and rebuilt in three days, Jesus is actually destroying the temple. He's destroying the need for it. By giving up his life for the forgiveness of sins, there's no need for the temple and the temple sacrifices anymore. And that Jesus then becomes our high priest and petitions on our behalf to the Father. And that Jesus is willingly going to the cross to do away with the old way of how Israel has interacted with God and their need for forgiveness. And here's the beautiful thing. Not only did Jesus say he would destroy the temple, but he said he would rebuild it in three days. Guess what, guys? Jesus rose from death three days later. He is the new way. He is the way to the Father. And this is what Matthew is pointing out to us, that Jesus had to go to the cross for the very thing he's being mocked for. Right? They're mocking him and deriding him and making fun of him in regards to the temple, and yet the entire way there, he is fulfilling what has to be done in regards to it. Right? It's the ultimate irony. Right? As they make fun of him, he's actually proving his point and their point to them. That by sending him to the cross, they're actually allowing him to do the very thing that they're making fun of him for not doing. And so as he hangs from the cross, right, you have the Roman guards mocking him. You have the people that came to worship at the temple during Passover mocking him. And then lastly, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are going to get on the action. Look at verse 41 through 44. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And so the slurs of the scribes and the elders sound eerily similar to an earlier moment in Jesus' life. Can you throw up Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 3 and 6 for me? Right, some of you guys may remember this back from when we even were studying in the book of Matthew, right? It's when Jesus is tempted by Satan, right? And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And throw verse 6 up there for me, will you? And, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so what Satan was trying to do this entire time was to get Jesus to take the easy way out. Right? Don't, yeah, you, know, you don't need to worry about this. If you're really the son of God, you can do whatever you want. Right? You don't need to follow the Father's plan for you. Right? Follow, follow my way and do it this way. And then one last moment as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the very people who should have understood more than anyone what was going on are the ones that are trying to tempt him to take the easy way out. 
hey, if you're really the son of God, if God really loves you, put your power on display and come down from the cross. Refuse to suffer the wrath of God and bring yourself down from there. That their mockery in the midst of suffering is the, is the last thing that Matthew is trying to communicate. That what Jesus accomplished while he was on the cross is in the midst of the mockery, he willingly suffered and endured God's wrath for you and I, even though he didn't have to. That every time Satan tempted him to walk in another direction and take the easy way out, he chose instead to follow the Father's perfect plan. And in the final hours as he hung from the cross, he was tempted one final time by the religious leaders to step down off the cross and not endure God's wrath, and yet he chose to do so. And so clearly those surrounding Jesus that day did not get the magnitude of what was occurring in front of them. They didn't understand that the wrath of God was finally being satisfied in the life of Jesus right in front of them. They didn't understand that Jesus had become their guilt offering and was doing away with the temple. That there was going to be no need for temple sacrifices anymore because Jesus was going to be the final sacrifice and peace offering for sin to the Lord. They didn't understand that Jesus was defeating sin once and for all. Most of them missed it, even the disciples And here's the reality, guys, and here's why I'm sharing all this and why I think this is so important. They missed it for the same reason that so many of us miss it, and and my coworker that that Saturday morning, the reason she missed it. The reason is this. As we've been talking throughout this entire fall, This is kind of where we've been trying to work ourselves to, right? The story and the flow of Scripture has been to get us to this point. That when God created mankind, He created us to operate as His image bearers. And to make much of Him in the way that we live our lives. And that that image has been marred and broken by Adam and Eve's choice to not worship and follow God, but instead to see themselves and put themselves in God's place. And that everything since then has been God moving his people to this place of I'm going to rescue you from yourselves. Right? We saw glimpses of it right, in the life of David where he gave David victory over an unconquerable enemy. We saw glimpses of it in the life of Jonah, where Jonah disobeys God's and direct commands from him, and yet God faithfully preserves the life of Jonah so that Nineveh might repent and return to God. And yet all through this time, the big promise that God gave Abraham was, I am sending a descendant through you through whom the entire world will be blessed. Someone will come from your family, Abraham. And we've gotten to that point where Jesus is that person. 
And yet so many today miss the reality that Jesus is who he said he was. They miss the magnitude of the cross. Sure, you can grow up in the church. Sure, you can grow up hearing stories about who Jesus was and who he, who, who, who he healed and the things that he did. You can grow up hearing those things all day long, but if the truth of this has not penetrated you, and you don't understand the why of Jesus going to the cross, you don't understand the magnitude of what God has done for you. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 comes to mind when I think through this. And when I think about that, that coworker of mine who didn't understand the cross and why God murdered his son. Look at what Paul says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's what Paul is saying. The people who surrounded Jesus that day on the day of his crucifixion really aren't that different from most of us. They didn't understand what was going on. And that's why Paul says that to those who are perishing, those who have do not believe in what Christ accomplished on the cross, the cross is foolishness, right? He says that to the Jews, it was, it was, it was a curse, it was, it was foolishness, right? He said that, that Jews demand, demand a sign. Like here, here's the reality of, of what Judaism claimed. Judaism said, you cannot claim to be the Messiah and the Son of God and then be put to death hanging from a tree. That they looked for a sign from the Messiah and the sign was, in fact, the crucifixion of Jesus and then his resurrection later. But yet to them it was foolishness. They could not reconcile that God might allow his only son to be the payment for their sin. So a sign was given and they rejected it. And yet he said, the Gentiles, the Greeks, they seek wisdom. And the idea of killing the king off makes no sense. Why would God send his son to come and reign as king and then he kill him? It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous story. But I love the next line of what Paul says because guys, this is is so true. He says, for in the wisdom of God, this is verse 21, The world did not know God through wisdom. He 
He's like, hey, in God's wisdom, in God's perfect plan to send his son to suffer and die for you, perfectly planned out, right? This is, the re- like, this is one of those mind-boggling things about who God is, right? God is perfectly just, and yet God is perfectly merciful. And very, very few things can make both those claims, That God both demands payment for our rebellion towards him and takes that payment and yet does it in the mercy of allowing his son to pay the penalty for that. Right? Most of us either clamor for justice or clamor for mercy, but very few of us have a way for both to be a reality at the same time. Right? Like... If you go into a courtroom and you're guilty of a crime, you're hoping for mercy, but if the judge pardons you, then he's not, he's not just. Yet God, in his wisdom, has found a way to both punish sin in the manner that is necessary, and yet forgive you and I for that same treason. And so in God's infinite wisdom, he's laid out this perfect plan, and yet as it sits there, the Greeks look at it and are like, why would you kill him? Why would you let the king die? Why would you allow your own son to die? The story is ridiculous. He says in verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God made manifest. Guys, one of the reasons I am a follower of Jesus beyond the work that God has done in my own heart is because if you were making up a religion, why in the world would you make this one up? Think, think about this. The culmination of the story we've been walking through this entire fall has brought us to the death of our hero. Why, why would someone make up a religion like that? The entire story has been building up to Jesus showing up to rescue everybody, and then he's killed. Who who makes that up? Who, Who has the time to sit through and think through a way to control people the way many, many people think religion is set up to do? Right? Who has the time to think up this story as the one that's going to change the world and and control people? I can think of a lot of ways to try to set up and make stuff up. It wouldn't, rev- it wouldn't revolve around this. It wouldn't revolve around the sacrifice of God's only son. And that is why to the outside world, the cross is foolishness. But if you are a follower of Jesus, it's the power of God for you unto salvation. And it's the only way God could both justly judge sin and mercifully forgive you. It is the only way that in the cross, Jesus is the power of God manifested to endure suffering, shame, and the penalty that you and I deserved. That power is put on display. And yet it's the wisdom of God not to view things from a temporary perspective, but to see the wisdom of God made manifest so that you and I might be forgiven. And the only way that you and I might be forgiven of our sins. Guys, Jesus is God's rescue plan for a sick and broken world. It's him. Nothing else. 
not social justice, not the right political party, not a good economy, right? I think about all the things we're thinking about right now culturally as a country. Like, you know, so, some of you guys are wrestling with these various questions, right? If I, if I get the right job or if I do well enough in school, right, then everything will be fine, right? Then, then I'll have made a way, right? If we get the right person in office, the country will be fixed, Right? If we can come up with the right advancements in science and technology and medicine, then we'll have arrived. If we can find a way to end poverty, then we will have arrived. Guys, we've been trying to answer those questions for thousands of years. The disease of sin is much bigger than the symptoms of poverty, broken homes, Racism, lack of education, and ultimately the issues we see with people dying because of medical problems. The only true answer is God's rescue plan, which is the cross of Christ. That God sent his only son to be the payment for your sins and for mine. As we head into Christmas here in a few weeks, we, we get really excited about baby Jesus, right? And he was hanging out in a manger and whatever else. But the climax wasn't about his incarnation. The climax was what he accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. That he achieved for you and I the forgiveness of the Father and the offer to be adopted as his sons and daughters once again. He endured the worst for us in the midst of mockery and shame. As we take communion this morning, reflect on the magnitude of that, guys. I don't have a great story, a great illustration, or a great joke for you this morning. I have one thing, and it's Jesus. And it is the absolute best thing that can be laid out for you because he's better than anything else this world has to offer. He's better than whatever smartphone or gift you're going to get from Santa this year. He's better than hanging out with family over the holidays. For some of you guys, that you agree wholeheartedly with that very easily. <laughs> He's better than any job you could be offered. He's better than any degree you could ever get. Because He is the Word of God unto salvation, offering you and I reconciliation to the Father. And as you take communion this morning, I beg of you to reflect on the fact that His body and His blood was given so that you might be forgiven. And that it was the Father's plan from the outset, all the way back in Genesis where we started, to get us to this point today so that you and I might know the depth and the riches of God's love for us found only in Jesus. Let's finish up our time worshiping him some more this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everyone here this morning, for the students that would take time out of studying to come here. 
for those that have worked busy weeks, have dealt with crying and angry kids, sick family members and hurting neighbors. Father, I pray that they would leave here from their weariness, not focused on the task or the situation before him, but focused on solely what you have done. God, you are so good. Jesus, may we know the depth and the riches of your love for us, that you willingly walked into this suffering, this mockery, this shame, and you endured it on our account so that we might be set free from sin and free to live for God. Jesus, thank you, and I ask this all in your name. Amen.